Let's take our Bibles and turn over to the Gospel of Luke chapter number 1. I've been speaking last Sunday and today on the topic of the kingdom of God because the Lord has commanded us to pray and to talk to God the Father regularly about the coming of His kingdom. It is the second topic of the five prayer topics that Jesus taught us to invest time talking to God the Father about. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And it's hard to talk to God about something you don't even understand or don't even know anything about it. What do you say to God about something you don't know anything about? And, and so it is imperative. And may I even venture the thought that maybe it's even uh, assumed by Jesus Christ that we know what it is. I mean, he told us to talk to the Father about the coming of his kingdom. And, of course, he spent a lot of time during his earthly ministry talking about that kingdom. And so he assumes we've read our Bibles and we understand what that kingdom is so that we can talk to the Father about it. But I realize that there's a lot of confusion about the kingdom of God. And we have addressed that in the messages last week and this morning about why some of that confusion exists. So we've been talking a little bit about the kingdom, what God had promised uh, who he promised it to, what he promised, what it involved, and and the expectation that that created generation after generation amongst uh, the people of God, the Jewish people, as to a kingdom that they anticipated and looked for and hoped for in their lifetime, each generation. And Jesus Christ came. And here in Luke chapter 1... Jesus Christ was introduced to Mary before Mary had agreed to carry the Christ child in her womb. God approached Mary through an angelic messenger. And in Luke chapter 1, in verse number 30, Luke chapter 1, verse 30, the angel said to her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb... And bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Those have sometimes been called the seven shalls. That the angel announced to Mary. If you're willing to carry this child. And enable the Messiah to become human. And enter into the human race. Then let me tell you seven things that shall happen. The first three of those things. The first four of those things. Are now past tense. She did conceive. She did name him Jesus. He was great, and he was called the son of the highest. Literally fulfilled the first four shalls. The last three shalls are yet future. God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Israel, the house of Jacob, forever. 
and of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Those are yet future. The first four were literally fulfilled. And we expect that the last three will be literally fulfilled as well. And those last three revolve around the promises God made to the descendants of of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. Promises that we call the covenants in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, Palestinian covenant, and Davidic covenant. And we believe these will be fulfilled. And yet, Israel looked for a Messiah, but they, they were not looking for a Messiah that fit the description that God had, uh, had promised. They were looking for a political Messiah who would merely remove the scourge of Roman domination from, uh, from them as a people. And, and we find that through Jesus' ministry, Jesus dealt with that misunderstanding of what his kingdom would be. That's what I want you to see. I want to read some different scriptures and catch uh, an understanding of how Jesus Christ steered the attention of the people away from merely a political uh, kingdom that would come as the result of someone conquering Rome. It was far more than that. It it was far... uh, There were things about this kingdom that they were missing. The things about this kingdom that they were missing had to do with the new covenant that we introduced this morning. The covenant of salvation. So here we are in the Gospel of Luke and Jesus is introduced as the one who would be the Messiah that would fulfill these promises that would include a political kingdom. But Jesus Christ will live and minister and teach that there's something that they were missing, that the, the, the Jewish people had misunderstood about this kingdom. Luke, uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke records the phrase kingdom of God more often than any of the Gospels. Uh, Matthew records the phrase kingdom of heaven, and Luke records, uses the phrase kingdom of God. They use them interchangeably in the different passages that tell the stories of Jesus' life. But it's Matthew and Luke that focus on the kingdom, and Luke more so perhaps than Matthew. And so throughout the Gospel of Luke, we have run into this. As you know, we have jumped in and out of Luke for years in our Sunday morning messages. The last time I preached on Luke, we were in Luke 19. It was, um, it was right around Thanksgiving last year. And we broke for Christmas to preach some Christmas messages and then the missions conference and then COVID. And so we have yet to return back to the Gospel of Luke. We are in chapter 19 right now. I have not lost track of where we are. But a year ago this month, I preached, uh, began to preach what ended up being five messages on the kingdom of God from Luke 17. Luke records two major uh, teachings about the kingdom of God, quoting and and recording sermons that Jesus preached. The first of them was in chapter 17, and it and it focused on the coming kingdom thematically. And uh, you probably don't remember it, but anyone who uh, who wants to, they are still on the church's website beginning in August of 2019. Five messages on the kingdom of God. 
And we took verse by verse through the passage in Luke 17, and we looked at the themes that Jesus Christ taught his disciples and unsaved people as well, because it was kicked off by a question from an unsaved Jewish man that had the kingdom mixed up in his mind. And that kind of set the context, and then Jesus delivered a message about the kingdom. And he didn't, he didn't step through it chronologically and say, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. But rather, he gave a number of themes that are true of the kingdom. And we preached through those themes. The second time that Jesus Christ addressed the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Luke is recorded in Luke chapter 21. And it is given chronologically as Jesus explains the chronology of how his kingdom will come into being, into existence. And we will yet see that when we get to, um, to uh, Luke chapter 21 in the, uh, sometime in the years ahead uh, or, or maybe months or weeks ahead. And so uh, Luke has a lot to say about the kingdom. And Jesus is keeping the focus of the kingdom uh, before the people in his ministry, both unsaved and saved alike, so they'll understand what it is that is coming down the pike. The unsaved need to understand, the unsaved Jewish people particularly need to understand that they weren't in the kingdom just because they were Jewish. That there was something more to being a member of the kingdom. And, he, and Jesus would talk to them about that. And one of the places he talked to them about that was Luke 13. So turn over to Luke 13. Let me read the reference and uh, that Jesus Christ um, addressed this subject of the kingdom of God. He, in Luke 13, there were some questions about, uh, about salvation. Who was getting saved or how many would get saved. Verse 23, then said one of them, Lord, are there few that be saved? Are, are there going to be hardly anyone that gets saved? Are there few people that get saved? And Jesus Christ said to them, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say, unto you will seek to enter in, will not be able. And then he gave a story about someone knocking at the door saying, let us in. And the master of the house says, no, you missed the opportunity. And, and then he said, in verse number 28, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east, west, north, south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. They thought because they were Jews, they were automatically in the kingdom. And Jesus Christ said, oh no, oh no. You must strive to enter into the kingdom of God. Some of you are going to miss the opportunity that God has given you. And one day you're going to see people who go into the kingdom of God and you won't be allowed in. And you're going to weep. And you're going to cry. Because you're not going to be allowed to enter in. So Jesus Christ talked to them about entrance into the kingdom of God. And how that it's not automatic because you're Jews. That you have to be, you have to be saved. In order to enter into the kingdom of God. Then flip a couple of pages over to Luke 17. This is the passage that we looked at for five Sundays back last August and uh, September. About the kingdom of God. In Luke 17 and verse number 20. Uh, he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. And of course the Pharisees were rejecting him. Always trying to trap him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They were always challenging him. 
And here they are challenging him, demanding of him. Imagine demanding God to do what you want him to do. This the term, the Greek term demanded, it speaks of a, of, a, of a higher authority demanding a subordinate to do something. Here's the Pharisees looking at Jesus as an itinerant preacher who falls under their authority as Pharisees. And they're demanding their subordinate, Jesus, to tell them when the kingdom of God should come. And so Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. And as I said, he dealt with a number of themes. But I want you to notice, he said in verse number 20... The kingdom of God is not with observation, neither shall they say low here or low there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, this is being said to unsaved Jewish people. And Jesus Christ basically said, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking, when will the kingdom of God come? And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter when it's going to come. You won't even be in it. You won't even be a part of it. Because the kingdom of God begins with the transformation of the heart. It's inside of you. And that is the key of what we looked at this morning. That the kingdom of God, the new covenant that Jesus promised, the new covenant was a transformation of the heart. It is inside of you. And so Jesus Christ said... To them, the kingdom of God is within you. He said a little bit later in verse number 25 that he, Jesus Christ, uh, but first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And so uh, the kingdom of God, it's, you know, the, the opportunity to enter into the kingdom of God was before the people. That's what John the Baptist was preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You repent and be baptized. You can be a part of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was preaching. They want to know when is it, where is it going to be? When is it going to happen? And he says, no, 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 it doesn't matter when. What it matters to you is whether you're going to be in. Because it begins inside of you. The kingdom of God is God's rule over his subjects. And that begins with the transformation of the heart. And so powerful statements Jesus Christ made here. Go over to John, the gospel of John, chapter number three. Here's... um, A story that's not recorded in Luke's gospel, but it's pertinent about this very thought. And uh, this was the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. But he didn't know the essence of what it meant to be in the kingdom of God. So he came to Jesus by night. Many suppose that he came by night because, because of who he was. He didn't come openly where people could see. The Pharisees were against Jesus, so he came by night and he asked Jesus Christ about this, uh, this relationship, what, what Jesus had been teaching. He said that no man can do these miracles except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot, notice, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Until there's a transformation from the inside of you. Until you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse number five, he repeated it with a little bit of a different twist. He said, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You can't see it. You can't enter into it and be a part of it unless you've experienced the transformation of your heart being born again by the spirit of God. So Jesus Christ in his ministry steered the Jewish people away from their false concept 
of a mere political kingdom where some military leader, a messiah, would come in and overthrow the military might of Rome and remove the scourge of Roman domination and establish a merely political kingdom in Israel that would rule the world. Well, that's there's some truth, you know, in all of that. But that wasn't the essence of God's kingdom. The essence of God's kingdom is a redeemed Israel. And that's where they missed. Because they were hung up on the old covenant from Mount Sinai. That they were law keepers, particularly the Pharisees. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee and he listed in Philippians chapter 3 his pedigree of why he was so proud of his attainment his righteousness as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he listed all of his pride uh, because of, uh, of his status in life. And then he said, I had to come to the point where I considered all of that to be manure. And I had to cast all of that aside and embrace Jesus Christ. And God transformed him from the inside. And he became a member of the kingdom of God. And so the... the, the concept of God's kingdom requires that we understand the new covenant, that it is a transformation of the heart where our sins are forgiven. God will remember our sins no more. We're born into his family. We're redeemed by the blood of the covenant that hadn't yet been provided at the time that Jesus was ministering, but he was wanting to correct their false ideas. Now turn back to Luke and go to Luke 22, if you don't mind. And here's Jesus in the upper room, uh, just hours before his arrest and his crucifixion. And here in Luke 22, Jesus Christ makes an important statement in verse number 20. Luke chapter 22, verse number 20, Jesus, there, he's, getting, he's, he's instituting what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. He took bread in verse 19. He said, this is my body which is given for you, the student remembrance. And then in verse 20, likewise also the cup. After saying, said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. That word testament, we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word testament means a covenant. It's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Testament is the new covenant God makes with man in the blood of Jesus Christ. The New Covenant is God Forgiving sin and remembering them no more and transforming a person's heart so that they're not bound by a checklist of external laws that they have to conform to, but they are bound by a heart relationship to their creator and their redeemer whom they love deeply because of what he did for them. And now it's not what I have to do, it's what I want to do. My heart is changed. You know, it's a great thing when you're raising children, and, and for, for a number of years, as you raise children, they, their heart is not inclined to want to do what mom and dad want them to do. And you can give a child an instruction, and the first thing they do is they immediately fight against that instruction. And they reject that instruction, they argue about that instruction, they refuse to obey that instruction, they stomp their feet, they determine if they're going to obey that instruction and when they're going to obey that instruction because it is an external law that in their heart they don't want to conform to and so they fight it. And God says the surefire way to deal with that is corporal punishment, physical pain. 
Because every child needs to learn that rebellion against authority will bring physical pain in your life. And it'll be that way right to the end when God throws someone into hell for their rebellion against him. And hell is the ultimate spiking. It's the ultimate physical suffering and punishment that a human being experiences because of the rebellion against their creator. And so a parent will lovingly, in measured doses, under great controlled environments, with a passion for the future of the child, because of how much they love them, they'll do something very difficult and very hard. They will spank their child. And they'll do it systematically at every disobedience. And they'll discipline themselves to do something very hard. In the lives of their children because they know that's God's prescribed way to bring the heart of a child to the point where they will not fight against the will of their parents. And then when that break finally comes and from the child's heart, they want to please dad and they want to please mom. And and their obedience now is a joyful obedience of the heart. This is a picture. This is a mirror of this thing of the transformed heart and salvation where we uh, come to the point where, where we want to do what God has told us to do because our heart has been transformed. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus held that cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. I tomorrow will pay the price, the ultimate price to enable your sins to be washed away and God will remember them no more. And you can enter into a covenant relationship, the new covenant relationship with your creator, God. And then when the kingdom comes, you'll be a part of it because you've been born into A relationship with God whereby you will be a part of God's kingdom. We find that repeated in 1 Corinthians 11 where the Apostle Paul taught the church at Corinth about how to observe the Lord's Supper. And he quoted what Jesus had said in the upper room when Jesus Christ held the cup of the fruit of the vine and said, This is the New Testament in my blood. This is the New Covenant. In my blood. So Jesus Christ made it clear right up to the point of his death that what he was doing, when he had said earlier that, that he, he must suffer these things in order to be able to accomplish this covenant relationship. And now at the point of his death, he, he, he referenced that in the Lord's Supper itself. So Jesus Christ did what was necessary in, to enable people to be transformed in their heart. And come into a relationship with God whereby they could be a part of God's kingdom when God establishes his kingdom on earth. Everything is provided now. And of course the disciples, as we learned last Sunday, the disciples asked the right question at the right time in the right place. They had every reason to believe as they stood with their feet on the Mount of Olives and Jesus' feet was on the Mount of Olives. That everything had been done. He suffered. He's risen from the grave. What is the, what's stopping it now? Will you restore the kingdom to Israel right now? And Jesus said, well, it's not for you to know what time. But I've got a job for you to do. And so everything is in place. Everything is ready. And yet it's not time yet. And for 2,000 years it hadn't been time yet. And during these 2,000 years we've been praying, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Thy kingdom come. Your kingdom established 
on the basis of your shed blood, a kingdom that will rule from Jerusalem, the kingdom you promised to Israel. Now, look with me. Uh, I want you to see uh, now, before we close, I want you to see that there are rough days ahead for Israel. Israel has, since 1948, Israel, uh, and even since before then, uh, but in modern history, Israel has been coming back to the land of Israel. The Jewish people who had been scattered to the four corners of the earth and, and who for 2,000 years had suffered such atrocities all over the world, they, they have been coming back to Israel and anyone who wants to research that great return to Israel, it is miraculous. It is amazing that, that this people, this off-scouring of the earth, this persecuted people under anti-Semitism that began to flood back into Israel and took a broken piece of real estate and turned it into an amazing nation, a fertile nation, a nation of people that have been used to bring such advances medically and technologically to the world. They are an amazing group of people who has transformed the land of Israel into an amazing place. But they've got some really rough days ahead coming. And Jesus talked about those in Luke chapter 21 and in verse number 24. Jesus Christ said to the disciples... And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away, led away captive to all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Jesus Christ told them that Jerusalem is going to be torn down. You remember on Palm Sunday as he rode in and as he came uh, over the crest of the Mount of Olives and started coming down into the Kidron Valley to go up in through the eastern gate into Jerusalem. As he was coming down on that donkey, he began to weep. I, we, I've stood there at the place where it could have, you know, we know where the Mount of Olives is. We know where the eastern gate is and we know where the road went. And, and it's right in the general area where Jesus would have wept over Jerusalem. And he said that if you only knew what was coming, if you only knew what your Generation is going to experience. Well, here's what this is what he's talking about. Jerusalem is going to be trodden down. The Gentiles are going to tear Jerusalem to the ground. And it'll be trodden down until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. This is exciting because we're living in a time where we've seen Israel coming back to the land. We've seen Israel being rebuilt. But we know that they are going to be under Gentile dominion until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled and there shall be signs in the sun, moon, stars, earth uh, and upon the earth, distress of nations, perplexity, sea and waves roaring, men's hearts failing for fear, looking uh, after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when you see these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Their kingdom is coming, but it's going to come at great price. Israel has got some horrendous days in front of them as they get closer and closer to the establishing of God's kingdom on earth. They are going to go through horrific situations. Those situations are described in the book of Revelation. Let's end in the book of Revelation this evening. In Revelation chapter 12, we have the, uh, the uh, chapter that 
chronicles the satanic war against the nation of Israel. Spelled out in Revelation chapter 12 in the analogy of a woman. A woman that is clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet and 12 stars uh, upon her head as a crown. And she being with child travailing in birth and pain to be delivered, there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. In the picturesque language of the book of Revelation, we have here the nation of Israel who is going to birth the Messiah. And the great red dragon, Satan, is going to try to devour the Messiah. He draws a third of the, the uh, part of the stars of heaven, the fallen angels. And, and they're ready to devour the son as the child as soon as it is born. The end of verse number 12, uh, verse number 4 tells us. And she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Of course, that's the ascension. So in the earthly ministry, as soon as Jesus was born of Mary, Satan has been in an effort during the earthly ministry of Jesus to devour the Messiah that Israel produced. And then finally, he was caught up to the throne. And then he describes the tribulation period. He describes it in, in, in numeric uh, description. The woman fled into the wilderness there. Uh, she hath a place prepared of God that should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. If you calculate that out, that's three and a half years. And that three and a half years appears uh, two or three times here in Revelation chapter 12 as God describes what she has, what Israel has to look forward to during the tribulation period. Verse number 13, the, uh, when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. That lasted, according to verse 14, at the end of the verse, for a time and times and a half a time. A time is one. Times is plural. That could be two. And a half a time, that would be three and a half. That matches the, the uh, description of the, uh, of the 1,203 score days of verse number six. And so this is the three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Satan will be kicked out of heaven and he will be madder than a hornet and he will attack Israel like she's never been attacked before. And verse number 17 says the dragon was wroth with the woman, that's Israel, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, that's the people of Israel, which kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so they will go through three and a half years of horrendous, horrendous anti-Semitism as Satan inspires the world political powers to try to annihilate once and for all the nation of Israel. Israel's got some really rough days ahead of her. She's got some horrendous persecution that is before her. In, back in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, he described the same, uh, for, the, the 40 in two months mentioned in chapter 11, verse number 2, is also two and a half years. And he's describing here uh, the temple. The temple. This could not, this was written in 95 AD, so it couldn't have been the temple that existed in Jesus' day. The temple that existed in Jesus' day was torn down in 70 AD. This wasn't written until 95 AD. And there hasn't been a temple standing on the temple platform from 70 AD to the present 
So there will be a temple that will be rebuilt on the temple platform in Jerusalem. And he's talking about that in Revelation 11, verses 1 to 3. And the Satan and uh, er, er, the, the Gentiles. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot 42 months. Again, three and a half years. And so for three and a half years, the second three and a half years of the tribulation period, Jerusalem will be trodden down. The temple platform will be trodden down by the Gentiles. Horrendous persecution against Israel. They have really rough days ahead of them. And of course, when you read chapter Revelation chapter 19, 20, and 21, you see all of that culminates in the uh, in the uh, tribulation conflict that destroys the world. And then Jesus stands up from the marriage supper of the Lamb table. And he, and, and he swings up into the saddle of a white steed. And all the redeemed uh, join in behind him. And we leap off from the heavenly shore. And we come back to this earth. And his feet will land on the Mount of Olives. And he will destroy all of the anti-Semitic forces of the world, rescue the remnant of Israel that survived. And when they, Israel, see him, there won't be an Israelite that will reject him. They will all be saved, as the new covenant says that they will be, and they will enter into the kingdom established on earth at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we will rule and reign with him. Uh, those chapters uh, tell us, and, uh, and then the, the Satan's released, one final conflict, Satan is bound up eternally in the lake of fire, and the Bible says the new heavenly Jerusalem will descend from God out of heaven, and he describes this amazing city as having 12 foundations, the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel has a presence right to the end of the Bible, they're in the plan of God, they're in the purpose of God, they did not get replaced. By Gentile Christians, the 12 foundations of the heavenly city are the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he also mentioned the 12 apostles. So we have the New Testament era. We have the nation of Israel. And we have the entrance into eternity. And uh, God's got purpose and plan. And it revolves around the coming of his kingdom. And that's what we're praying for every day when we talk to God. God, will the kingdom come soon? Even so, come, Lord Jesus, establish your kingdom on earth. And, of course, we know since there's a seven-year period of time that precedes the second coming of Jesus Christ, where God is bringing the world into account, we say we're looking forward to the rapture so we can get out of the way and uh, the tribulation period can begin. And then that generation, when they see those things begin to come to pass, that generation will know that the coming of the Messiah is nigh at hand. And that generation will see their Messiah come back to earth. And we've got to get out of here so all that can start. So uh, we're praying that Jesus will take us home so all of that can fall into place. Talk to God about his kingdom. God wants his kingdom of redeemed people, a redeemed people converted by inward heart transformation. God wants that on earth. And we're to be talking to God about it every day and asking for it to come so that he can be glorified through his kingdom.